You may open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I hope that you heard clearly this morning as our brother led us through a martyr's memorial for the 33rd Sunday in a row that the persecution and the martyrdom of Humayr was by the Protestants, not by the Catholics. It's a shame that so many Baptists are raised to think of Zwingli and Luther and their, and Calvin and others as enemies of persecution. Because if you were a Baptist in those days, all three of those men had no use for you. You Baptists were considered foolish because they had departed so far from the church fathers of infant baptism and other traditions held by Rome that Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and others held to yet. What a disgrace, what a shame, but what a glorious tribute the man made. And you, we can imagine, don't we all tremble with the thought of could we do what they did? And we understand him cramp, him uh, failing for a couple of minutes there before that tribunal where his life was on the line. But praise God for the strength that the Lord gave him. Amen. And uh, the Lord's able to give us the strength for the tasks that are before us. Yes. Though sometimes they are very unpleasant, very painful and troublesome. We are not Protestants. Amen. We have never protested against Rome. We were never part of Rome. Amen. We didn't try to reform Rome, so we're not reformers. The only reformers we are is that we're followers of the New Testament because the time of Reformation put away the Old Testament and gave us the New Testament. It's a Bible Amen. expression in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. That Reformation of Rome, we didn't try to reform Rome. We don't want Rome reformed. Leave Rome the way it is, filled with every filthy bird, as the book of Revelation describes it. We're thankful for the grace of God toward us and the truth that he has shown us. There have been Baptists since John the Baptist. In every age and generation of the world, since John and the Lord Jesus Christ, there have been Baptists that were outside the pale of Rome and that held the believers' baptism and other doctrines and distinctives that make them Baptists. And we're thankful to be in their heritage. They are our fathers in the faith. The Lord prepared the great wings of an eagle to preserve them in the wilderness, and He has preserved them, and we want to be part of the remnant of His seed. Ephesians chapter 1. I appreciate everything that has been said already this morning. We have already had more of the Word of God in the prayer meeting that took place before the service, and so far that has been done this morning than most churches get in a day. And uh, we should be very thankful for that and rejoice in it. And I appreciate all the efforts that have been made by others. Ephesians 1. I want to speak to you for a few minutes about our assurance of eternal life. And, you, need, you know, we need to have maybe favorite passages of Scripture that summarize where eternal life comes from. And Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6 is one sentence, and it does a very wonderful job. Amen. And I read it to you now. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. This is where we put all our confidence and all of our assurance. Actually, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. We lay claim to Him by laying hold of eternal life by our righteousness and faithfulness to Him. Beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 
according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. I had a great privilege, and I thank you for it, to meet with you on Wednesday evening and preach to you briefly about God's everlasting love for His elect and their eternal union with Jesus Christ. Are you able to hear this read to you? Are you able to look at it and know that it is describing our eternal union with Christ? Because God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And when it's before the foundation of the world, when time began, then it's eternity. It's our eternal union in Christ. What is in Christ? All spiritual blessings. Our adoption. Our acceptance by God. Us being holy. Us being without blame. Us being loved by God. It's all by God's everlasting love and choice of us before the world began to always view us in Jesus Christ. It is a forgotten doctrine today. It was an attack doctrine in yesterday, yesteryear, yester century. And I thank the Lord that He's shown it to us, convinced us of it, and caused us to love it. And I hope that you love it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the origin, that is the first cause, that is the source of all things. There is a first cause. It is the God Almighty. And He chose us in Christ before the world began. And in Jesus Christ, we are inseparable from Him. And in Him, we are one in Him. God has never seen you outside of Christ. He only sees you in Christ. He'll always see you in Christ. And we are going to be where Christ is. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. He is the head. We are the body. He filleth all things in all, but we're the fullness of Him that filleth all things in all. We're tied together with the Lord Jesus Christ and tied together since eternity. This is our doctrine. This is our salvation. And this is how men gain eternal life by the choice of God to put them in the Lord Jesus Christ and to assign the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began to die, to live for them. Because after he died, he rose from the dead. And after 40 days by Many infallible proofs showing himself alive to his disciples. He ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high where he lives forever to make intercession for us as our great high priest. He will never lose a single one of them. He said so himself in John chapter 6. They are in his hand and he is in his father's hand. Thus we're in God's hand and Christ's hands. No man can pluck us out of their hands. This is the doctrine of salvation. It's absolutely certain. You can't fall out of it. You can't lose it. You don't have to be saved again. You don't have to be born again. It's all certain the first time. And it can all be traced back to the choice of God before the world began. If you look through verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, you can't find your will. You can't find your works at all. It's God's will, God's works, God's choice, God's predestinating power, Christ's death that made us accepted in the Beloved. 
Our faith or works have nothing to do with initiating or securing God's grace. They are only the evidence that God's grace is in our lives. And you've already heard that this morning, that if we live like Psalm 26 describes in its evidence of our regeneration, and if you're regenerated, it's evidence of your justification. And if you're justified, then it's evidence of your election in God and predestination to the adoption of sons before the world began. It's all linked together in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. You can't break a single link of it. It's a chain of grace. That's how we're saved. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Okay. Genesis chapter 4. Let's go. Let's go. Today is not going to be as long as some, and I am not sorry for today. I'm sorry for some as being as long as they are, but I thank you for your kind attention. Genesis chapter 4, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you read through the Scriptures, you're going to come upon men like Abel and Cain. And you're going to be able to see that there are wicked men in the world and how they conduct themselves. And you're going to see that there are righteous men in the world and how they conduct themselves. And Abel's righteousness did not secure heaven for him. Heaven secured Abel's righteousness for him. Abel was righteous because of God's mercy in his life. But from the beginning of the Bible, we see this war and enmity between the wicked and the righteous. And all we have to do is look at the character and find which side we're on by our lives. Lord, help us to always find ourselves on every example that we find in the Bible of being with the righteous and against the wicked. In Genesis chapter 4, we're not going to Cain and Abel. I'm going to leap a little bit ahead, a number of years to uh, the last verse of Genesis chapter 4, and let's see if we find ourselves there or not. Either, either you are like this man and his descendants in Genesis chapter 4, or you are like the men in Genesis chapter 6 that brought the flood upon the earth. It's that simple. This is the evidence of everlasting life. Evidence is defined in the Bible. And I have a number of illustrations of it. Genesis 4, 26 into Seth. To him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you call upon the name of the Lord? Do you bow yourself before God Almighty and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ approach His holy throne and call upon His name that He is the great and living God and beside Him there is no other and your only hope of salvation and the only help that you have in this life is because of Him? Do you call upon the name of the Lord? Lord, save me! Now that's a short prayer, but it sure saved Peter from the Sea of Galilee. And that's all that it takes sometimes. My family knows about a time that my grandfather, paternal grandfather, had to cry out because of the attack of the devil on him for leaving spiritism. Lord, save me! And my father and my brother know that the Lord saved him. Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at the the wicked in the days of Noah and what the Bible says about them. Evidence is defined. See, I'm defining the evidence that the Bible gives us from the first pages to the last pages of the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, which one are you like? They called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 4.26, Or, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now there, you know, there's a continuum, of course, between those two, but when you really boil someone down, you can tell whether, what side they're on. Calling upon the name of the Lord in love and faithfulness and fear to him, or 
their thoughts just continually churning with imaginations, imaginations of mischief and evil. Lord, thank you for the definitions. Amen. Show us more. Psalm 10. Psalm 10. There are many of these. All of them are available in the outline that's already posted under Assurance of Eternal Life on the website for recent sermons. Psalm 10 and verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. Does that sound like the sons of Seth and Enos there in Genesis 4.26? No, they will not seek after God because they're too proud to humble themselves and say, I am wrong and you are right. To Almighty God. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. They never think about God lovingly. They never think about God fearfully. They never think about God obediently. Oh, they may think about God. They may take some class and write down the three-letter word G-O-D. They may use God's name in vain, and they may think about it that way, but they don't think about Him as far as obeying Him. Do you? I trust that you do. I trust that you can you can see as we go through the pages of Scripture that God's grace is evident in your life. Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. There's not a good atheist on earth. There's nothing good about any atheist on earth. They have done abominable. They're wicked. Everything they do, if they help the little old lady across the street and take off his $500 suit jacket and lay it in a mud puddle for the little lady to walk on, it's an abomination to God. Any sacrifice by the wicked is an abomination to God. Much more so when he bringeth it with an evil mind, is what the Bible teaches. Verse 2, the Lord looked, up from, looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's good defined by God, not defined by man. Right. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Okay, are you in that category? Have you said there is no God? Have, has the Lord looked down from heaven and seen that you didn't understand? You didn't seek God? You've gone aside? You're all together become filthy? There's none that doeth good? No, not one? Or do you seek God? Do you understand the things of God's Word? God's made a difference in your life. Evidence is defined in the Bible. From beginning to end. God has not written the Bible. And God has not saved us to leave us in terror and fear about the future outcome of the great day of judgment. He wants you to have boldness in the day of judgment. He wants you to have boldness leading to the day of judgment. Psalm 26 wasn't bad, was it? Did it fit today's theme? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at Psalm 15. We've been there before. You know, I'm not even going to ask you to look at it. We've been there too many times. It was two weeks ago. But you know, when you read Psalm 15, verses 1, down through the first half of verse 5, it lists the character traits of the righteous. Do they match you? You know, we could look at Psalm 24, but that was last Sunday, verses 3 through 6. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Evidence is defined in the Bible. This is not a deep concept at all. This is a simple concept, and I'm going to multiply witnesses. I want you to be able to see that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it tells us what the righteous are like and what the wicked are like, and you can find out which side you're on by matching your life compared to their lives. Because that's what the Bible teaches. I want to tell you this. 
In Revelation chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, it says that there is going to come a moment in time where time will be no more as we know it. And it says this, He that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. Because there will be no changing of your lifestyle after that moment. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Then we meet God. Oh, I want to find myself aligned with the righteous, and I want everyone in this church aligned with the righteous, and I want us to be putting forth the maximum effort that we can put forth today, like 1 Corinthians 9 described, so that we can go out of this place, and this day marks a day in our lives where we have purified our hearts, purified our minds, purified our hands and feet better than we ever have before. We will look back at this day and say, from this day, I have lived more energetically, more zealously, more faithfully for the Lord than I ever have before. By His grace, Lord, help us to this noble goal that Paul encouraged us to. Psalm 34 and verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that have a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Well, the Lord saves those that have a contrite spirit, and He's close to those that have a broken heart. Have you, when you've sinned and been convicted about it and confronted over it, have you, has your heart broken? Has your spirit been contrite? And in contrition and repentance and self-abhorrence, you have admitted your sin and said, I hate that sin. I was wrong. I was foolish. Lord, forgive me. And to anyone that you wronged in this life, you beg them to forgive you as well. If you've ever done that, you're in the path of the righteous. You're in the straight and narrow way, brethren, because I want to tell you, a wicked man does not do that. A wicked man, when he gets caught, will be, will be upset that he got caught, but he will not have a broken heart. He is just waiting to get away from whatever caught him and get away from that authority and so he can commit it again. Lord, help us. Look at Matthew chapter 7. I'm springing all the way to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ gave as the concluding remarks of his Sermon on the Mount according to Matthew's account of that sermon. He has just explained about the great day of judgment and how he will cast many away from him and say that he never knew them in verses 21 through 23. And then he said this in a context of the final judgment. Verse 24, therefore, therefore, you know, we get a therefore in in conjunction with the great day of judgment, we want to listen. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. This is the great day of judgment. This is keeping the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 would say that you can lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come. This is the good foundation against the time to come. Your house, your life, built upon a rock. And the winds and the waves and the storms came and blew against your house or your life in the great day of judgment. But you stand. 
Because you have the evidence of eternal life by keeping the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now that's the difference in the great day of judgment between those who keep the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't. Now, when you flip through the pages of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, do you find yourself matching up with what's described there? Do you love what's described there? Do you try to keep what's described there? When you don't keep what's described there, do you confess those sins? Your house is built upon a rock. You have laid up in store a good foundation against the time to come. Look at Luke 3. Luke 3. This is very simple. But assurance of eternal life is very simple. Are you living like the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your life conformed to Him? Is it transformed from this world? Or is it conformed to this world? Luke 3. John the Baptist is preaching. He's at the River Jordan. And men have come out to be baptized by him, and they ask several groups ask him some questions. Luke 3.10, the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Boy, this is a good question. We want the answer, don't we? He answered and said to them, Invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Savior, and you'll go to heaven when you die. It doesn't say that. This is the one method of teaching. It's to show what he didn't say. Luke 3.10, the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? If there's judgment coming and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to wreak vengeance on the land of Israel, what should we do then? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. If you've got extra coats hanging in your closet and you find out about a person in Israel that didn't have a coat, doesn't say anything about Egypt or Philistia, if you find that about a child of God that doesn't have a coat, then you give him a coat. You say, that sounds like works of charity. Amen. You're thinking with me. Good. Verse 12. Then came also publicans to be baptized. These are the tax collectors, traitors to the nation of Israel. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. You know, uh, how was a person supposed to know when the publican came to your door and said you owe ten grand when uh, the Roman government was only asking for eight? They hated the publicans. Remember, Zacchaeus was a publican. And as soon as he came down, he said, Lord, if I've wronged any man, I'll, I'll restore it fourfold. Because he knew that it was a, a profession that could be given to corruption. And so John the Baptist said, specifically for those publicans, specific to them, don't exact any more than the Roman government has asked you to exact. Don't pad your pockets with the taxes of the nation. Verse 14, And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Here are occupying soldiers in a foreign nation, they could take from the populace, they could steal, they could pillage, they could use their authority and they could use their weapons and the might of Rome to pad their own pockets and to get ahead that way. And so John says to them, don't do violence. That doesn't mean you can't be a soldier. He didn't say lay down your arms and put on a clerical robe and become a nun. He said don't do violence to any man. That means 
uncalled for violence. Don't use your position as a Roman soldier or your weapons and be content with your wages. You know, the wages may not be very high and you may have the power of might in which you could take from people, but don't take. Isn't that? This is what the Bible says. Where, where's this? I want you to get out. Of, I want you to get up out of your your seats right now. By the hundreds and by the thousands, I want you to get up out of your seats and come forward and give your life to Christ. I'm pretending I'm Billy Graham. See, Billy Graham should have pretended he was John the Baptist. Right. When John the Baptist was asked, "What should we do?" he had specific answers, and I haven't been able to find yet reading the whole Bible where anyone ever said, "Come forward." What I hear is, go and sin no more. So which side are you on? Does verse 11 make sense to you? Have you tried to do that in your life? Do you want to do that in your life? If you had an opportunity to do it, would you do it? Verse 13, are you fair in all your business transactions? Verse 14, are you content with your wages? That doesn't mean you don't go interview, but are you content with your wages? Okay, Lord, thank you for showing us things so plainly. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I watched a biography about Billy Graham in the last week with my wife. And some people would say, well, Billy Graham couldn't be wrong because look at all those people that attended his crusades and that thought he was a great man. That by itself is proof he was wrong. Amen. The crowds never went and heard Jesus Christ like that. I wonder what made the difference. You want to say Billy Graham's greater than Jesus Christ? Billy Graham had a false gospel and a false Jesus and a false spirit associated with his ministry. He would compromise with anyone. Billy Graham, when confronted by Larry King on Larry King Live, with these words, Dr. Graham, what do you think about the recent passing of John Paul II? Do you think a Catholic can be in heaven? The man of sin himself. Do you know what Billy Graham said? This is just a few years ago. Larry, I have more confidence that John Paul II is in heaven than I will be. That man doesn't have a clue. He's never had a clue. He doesn't believe that there's a literal burning hell. He's a Presbyterian. He hasn't even figured out the doctrine of baptism. He still thinks you sprinkle babies. You know, whether he was a nice guy or not doesn't matter. And whether he could play a good game of baseball when he was a teenager, I don't care about that either. But I love John the Baptist because he's in the pages of Scripture and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're told. Acts chapter 9. You want to find out if you're one of God's elect and have assurance of eternal life? The Lord Jesus appeared to Ananias and said, I've got a man for you to baptize. (laughs) Who, Lord? Saul of Tarsus. Lord, I have heard that this man is just terrible. You know what words? Do you know what words the Holy Spirit put in here for us? Right now, this moment, you go to such and such a house, behold, he prayeth. Verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, Acts 9-11, the Lord said to Ananias, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For, behold, he prayeth. That's a comforting little remark there that's put in by the Holy Spirit to describe the change in Saul of Tarsus' life. 
Are you a prayer? Do you pray? Praying before your food doesn't count. Praying. Getting down on your knees. Getting down in your closet. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Seeking the face of God. Asking Him to forgive your sins. Asking Him for a greater blessing of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you pray? Behold, He prayeth. Thank you, Lord, for such a a little statement. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. How does the gospel affect you? When you hear the preaching of the gospel, do you want to criticize it? Do you want to question it? Do you want to attack it? Do you want to mock it? Look at the difference in three verses. Then Paul and Bar- Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Don't you reject the gospel. The gospel is the good news of glad tidings, of things God has done for His people. And you should rejoice and be glad and be thankful about it and want to talk about it because it's the greatest news we'll ever hear. These people didn't. These Jews didn't. So Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and told them, we had to preach it to you first because that's what God required of us. But you've shown that you're unworthy of everlasting life, so we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Look at the difference. Which side are you on? You know, the way I preached this nine years ago, I would say, it is no fine line. It's a great chasm. Do you rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you don't, there isn't evidence of eternal life. If you do, there is. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Oh Lord, comfort us with your scriptures. Let us see that this is simple for us. But we want to do more. We want to give diligence to make our calling and election sure. We want to be tempered in all things. We want to seek an incorruptible crown, not a corruptible. We don't want to run as uncertainly. We don't want to fight as one that beateth the air. We want to win the prize. We want to obtain first place. And our goal to obtain first place is not to be guilty of emulation or excessive competitiveness among ourselves. Part of seeking first place in God's calling and the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is to help others achieve that prize with us. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? After five chapters of God's amazing grace, and I consider Romans chapter 5 in recent days my favorite chapter in the Bible, and I think I've shared that with you because it's the density of God's grace in Romans chapter 5 is very high. But after you get through Romans chapter 5, look at the very next words. What shall we say then? After five chapters of Romans and after Romans chapter 5, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This ought to be our response. God forbid. God forbid. The doctrines of election and the doctrines of representation by the first and second Adams do not lead me to sin at all. On behalf of what God's done for me, I want to live for Him. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then he goes on to describe how we should come up out of the waters of baptism and walk in newness of life. 
There's many more, brethren. I have about 60, and I've only given you about 10 or 12. Uh, look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. There's so many more. You know, we could fill pages with them, because when you read the Bible, the Bible is the history of the righteous and the wicked. And every time we find a description about the righteous, we should look at it and say, I want to thank you, Lord, I'm like that. Or, Lord, I want to be more like that. Or, Lord, I want to be much more like that. Help me. When we see the wicked, Lord, don't ever let that touch my life. Keep me from that. Incline my heart away from that and toward righteousness, like David would pray. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. How do you sing, brethren? How do you sing? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Does Christ's word, does the gospel of Jesus Christ dwell in you? Are you wise about it? Do you understand it? Are you full of the wisdom of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When you're singing, are you thinking about the Lord? Are you thinking about the grace that's welling up inside of you that wants to find release in public singing? It's part of the life of a Christian. Do you swell up with it? Do you love to raise congregational singing to the Lord? It's an evidence of eternal life. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. James chapter 1 and verse 12, For when that man is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. Pure religion and unspotted before the world, pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, that a man keep himself unspotted from the world and visit the widows in their affliction, James 1.27. Do you care about keeping yourself unspotted from the world? That's pure religion before God and the Father. Do you care about widows? Have you been excited about our little widow getting in her new apartment? Have you visited her? Have you taken her to therapy? Who's going to get to take her home today? I know. Praise the Lord. It's an evidence of eternal life. It's pure religion. When the Bible says pure religion, that should get us excited. Pure religion. Because there's so many false religions in the Bible, and there's so much false religion in the world. And you think, isn't it believing in the doctrine of election? No. The devils believe in the doctrine of election. It's believing in the doctrine of widows. And it's believing in the doctrine of holiness, unspotted from the world. Okay, let me move on to a couple of other points, please. There's many more things that could be said. I've given you a few. There's many more available in an outline and just reading your Bible. When you're reading the Bible and the Lord gives you a description of the wicked, measure yourself. The Lord gives you a description of the righteous, measure yourself. They all had faults. They had failures. The best of men in the Bible the Bible tells us about their faults and failures, and so there's comfort. And that's what I want to say to you right now. Sin, sin on the part of a man who's doing and has the character and conduct of the verses we've just looked at, no more proves reprobation for you than it does for David or Peter. Sin that occurs once in a while, that you confess and forsake and repent from and turn around and seek God with all your might, doesn't prove your reprobation any more than it does David and Peter's, and it doesn't prove reprobation for David and Peter at all. David was a man that God loved dearly. He did more than commit aggravated adultery and murder. 
He also cost a man his life by moving the ark incorrectly. He numbered Israel, costing 70,000 lives. He committed murder in his heart against Nabal. He practiced gross polygamy, contrary to the law of Moses for kings, and was a pitiful father, among other faults. Are you nervous about his salvation like you are yours? I can promise you where David is. And if you wanted to draw rings around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, David's not at an outer ring. Because when he sinned, he confessed his sins, he forsook his sins, and he pursued God with all his might to make up for those sins. We cannot make up for sins in the legal tribunal of God, but we can make up for sins here to show God our seriousness in following Him. We can fast, we can pray, we can confess, and we can say, though, Lord, you will not let me build your temple, I will pay for it. And he went out, as we shall see in the second service, with a blaze of zealousness for the Lord. Peter was one of the Lord's favorites, not only denied him, but played the hypocrite in Galatians chapter 2, and Paul had to rebuke him for all men since that time to know that Peter played the hypocrite twice in his life and, and was to be blamed in the matter. But uh, Peter has two epistles in his name, and I can promise you that there are 12 thrones set in heaven. There's actually 24, 12 for the Old Testament, 12 for the New. Do you know who's sitting on one of them? The 24 elders. Do you know who one of them is? It's Peter. Rest assured, the devil wants you to think that if you sin, it's over. Can you understand why he wants you to think that? Then you're defeated mentally, you're defeated in your heart, and you give up on serving Christ with all the zeal that you had before because you think that now it's ruined. Well, David didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. You shouldn't do it. Confess it, forsake it, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. We know that Lot's in heaven. We know that Samson's in heaven. And we know that some pretty disobedient Corinthians are in heaven. Because the Bible tells us so. But we don't have such a written record for you or for me if we sin. Therefore, since we don't have the written evidence, when we sin, we better repent and turn toward the Lord with all our might. Chastening doesn't prove reprobation. It proves God's everlasting love. You say, how do you, how do you make that connection? Okay, in Hebrews chapter 12, does it say that if we're chastened, we're sons and not bastards? Is there a comparison between sons and bastards in Hebrews chapter 12? Is that ugly word in our King James Bibles? If it's in our King James Bibles, then it's not an ugly word, is it? Okay, we've got sons that get chastening by God. Can chastening be severe sometimes? Can chastening hurt us a lot? Can it be long-standing? Can it be painful? Can it get us from the inside out? Can it get us from the outside in? Sons. How are we sons? We were adopted. How are we adopted? According to the predestinating purpose of God. When was the predestinating purpose of God that we would be adopted and become sons and wouldn't be bastards? In eternity. It's God's everlasting love for us. When you're chastened for sin and conviction comes to you and say, Lord, I know why you're, I know why you're spanking me right now. I know why. It's proof that you're in the everlasting covenant of God and in the eternal union with Christ. He's the firstborn among many brethren. 
We want to have confidence. Give me a couple more minutes. Second Timothy 4, 7, the Apostle Paul said in verse 6, My time is ready. I am ready to depart. The time of my departure is at hand. He said in verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So he was confident of his evidence. Now we want to be confident of Christ most of all, but we also want to be confident of our evidence because Paul was. Paul was confident of his evidence. He didn't say in verse 7, Jesus did it all. He has taught everywhere else where he put his pen to paper that Jesus did it all. Right now, he is pointing out, Timothy, I am leaving this world. I am leaving you in charge of some churches. I have just laid out how you should conduct yourself in the house of God. I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I finished my course. You do yours. Because I've done this, I know that there's a crown of life waiting for me because I've served the Lord with all my heart. And that crown of life, that crown of righteousness is waiting just as well for those that love His appearing. And he says that in verse 8. Brethren, our response to the gospel is very important. In our hatred of decisional regeneration, we cannot reduce our response to the gospel to nothing. Does everyone hear me? Because we know decisional regeneration, decisional salvation that is so popular in the world today, make a decision for Jesus. All that stuff, not taught in the Bible, popularized so much, though we know that it is wrong, it cannot reduce our response to the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ. If you were born into the truth and raised in it, you personally must still embrace it fully for yourself. You must run to Christ yourself. And when I say run to Christ, it doesn't involve your legs because you should be on your knees. And going to the Lord of glory and telling the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth that you know He's the Son of God. He's the High King of Heaven. He's the only Savior for His elect. That not a single one will be lost. That He's the Lord of glory and you will do anything He wants from your life. Anything that you find written in the Word of God for your life from the Lord of glory, you will do it, and you will do it with your might. And that you are confessing your sins and begging for Him to forgive you your sins. That's running to Christ. That's believing on Him. And every one of you should embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't look at a moment we did that. We should be looking at a life that does that. We should be doing that all the time. Without personally believing and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have the foundational evidence of eternal life. If I am responsible for there not being sufficient evidence and emphasis on what I'm talking about right now, God forgive me. And please forgive me, church. We still believe that when the jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The first thing that we do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth Nazareth is the Son of God. He was crucified by the Romans and the Jews. He was put in the tomb. He was there for three days and three nights. He rose from the dead. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. He ascended up into heaven. He's ruling the world with a rod of iron. He's coming again to destroy the wicked and take the righteous to himself. We believe those things. We tell the Lord Jesus Christ that we believe them, that we will do anything he says. We go with the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and say, Lord, 
what wilt thou have me to do? Most of you, it's not going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It'll be something less, but we want to give him anything that he tells us to do. You must personally go to Jesus Christ by faith, believing on him to have evidence of salvation. That's where we start. When you, when you make that belief in your heart and you run to Christ and you embrace him and you say, Lord, I know that you're the Son of God and I will live the rest of my life for you, you're not regenerated when you do that. Your name's not written in the book of life when you do that. When you do that, it is the first evidence that your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. It's the first evidence that God regenerated you because the Bible says very plainly, he that believeth on him is born of God. That's a perfect tense meaning that you were born of God before you did the believing. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15. On this point, 1 John 4, 15. This is important. We never want to forget, we never want to understate the evangelical importance of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing on the Son of God. 1 John 4, 15. Whosoever shall confess. What tense is that? Whosoever shall confess. Future tense. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. When you confess that the Lord Jesus Christ, when you tell others that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, nothing happens in heaven. We're just able to see a change in you. And it proves that God dwelleth in you. Notice the order of the verbs. The, 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 the verb tenses of the verbs. It doesn't matter what order verbs are in a sentence. It depends on what verb tenses they have associated with them. Without believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you will not have the power of God in your life. According to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14. Hate the idea of mental assent to the gospel. We do not want just mental assent, mental agreement, intellectual agreement. I know the facts. I believe the facts. We want more than that. We want an embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want accounting Him altogether lovely. We want an adoration of Him. We want counting Him precious and telling Him we'll do anything that He wants us to do. Because the devils believe and tremble. The devils assent to the intellectual facts and the historical facts of the Lord Jesus Christ. But believing and calling, we're to add works to it. I want to show you some more verses. You know, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord! And I'll profess I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus in Luke 6.46 said, Why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I command? Look at John chapter 2. Please, John chapter 2. Very quickly at the end of John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in the feast day, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew that they were not real believers, but they believed on him. Believing on him is not enough. It's just the start. It's just a little tiny start that brings you up to the level of a devil. You need to add a whole lot more to it. And that's why I am preaching this series of messages. I've got 15 or 20 reasons and good reasons why this preaching is good for all of us. But this is for the evidence of eternal life. You call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on Him and confess Him before men. 
You know, in John chapter 6, there's a long chapter where men sought the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted to make Him a king, and they believed on Him. But do you know why they believed on Him? Because they got a free lunch out of Him. That's the feeding of the 5,000, according to John's account of it. They got a free lunch. And so He poked them about the bread that comes down from heaven, that when a man eats of it, he'll never have be hungry again. They didn't know what he was talking about. He said, you need to eat me. They thought he was talking about cannibalism. And he did it intentionally because they all left him. And he turns to his disciples and says, you guys want to go away too? That's what he said in John chapter 6. He didn't run after that crowd, even though they believed on him. He got rid of them because they were fake, false, hypocritical, carnal, belly-worshipping believers on Him. Those who don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be burnt up soon because 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ will soon be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we should do when we hear the wonderful news of Jesus Christ is taught from the Scriptures of the New Testament And the Old Testament prophecies of Him is to embrace Him by faith and tell Him that we love Him and that we believe He is the Son of God and that He has done all that there is to be done and to forgive us our sins and that we will live for Him with all we have. To get up and to be baptized in His name and other things that I will preach to you the next time we get together. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word that every one of us, whether we've done it a thousand times before or not, we'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then live the lives of the righteous, separating ourselves by a great distance from the wicked, and that we will do it with our might, disciplining our lives with the temperance of world-class athletes, all for the incorruptible crown of the wonderful words from the Lord Jesus Christ, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.